0: Hi, this is Alan Cross. Welcome to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, our weekly exploration of the stories and characters that made modern music what it is today. We want to make this podcast one of your favorites. So if you love the show, do me a favor, tell a friend about it. Or rate it on iTunes if that's your thing. We'd really love it if you'd do that. Or you can just drop me an email with your thoughts to alan at alancross.ca. Maybe you want more information on something you hear. Or maybe you have an idea for a topic for a future episode. Whatever. I guarantee your response. Alan at alancross.ca. Whether you're listening one at a time or binging on a bunch of podcasts all at once, we're glad to have you here. All right, let's talk music, shall we? In the early days of rock, and we're talking the 1950s here, the most efficient and cost-effective way to put acts on tour was to bundle them together as a package and put them all out on the road together at the same time. In some cases, there would be a common backing band. All the artists would use the same musicians. PA equipment, such as it was in those days, was often supplied on site. These became known as caravan tours. Guys like Alan Freed, the pioneering disc jockey, and Dick Clark, you know him, right, took all these acts on the road playing places like theaters and county fairs and wherever else they could find a booking. This package tour approach was pretty common until the late 1960s when the music business was producing artists big enough to tour on their own and play arenas and later stadiums. That's where the real money was. That and big festivals. But then along came Lollapalooza in 1991. Perry Farrell, the singer for Jane's Addiction, put together a multi-act bill to support what would be the last ever tour for Jane's Addiction. The net effect was very much like one of those old caravan tours from the 50s. That 91 tour was successful enough for Lollapalooza to try again in 1992, and this time things were expanded across multiple stages and multiple attractions. And for the next couple of years, Lollapalooza was the touring music festival for the alternative generation. This spawned imitators, Edgefest, Lilith Fair, Somersault, another roadside attraction, and for a while back in the 90s, it was all pretty cool. But things are different now. Lollapalooza is a static festival held in Chicago every August. Edgefest, Lilith Fair, Somersault, and another roadside attraction are all defunct. But there was one traveling music festival that survived for 24 years. And it's been so big that no one knows for sure how many acts have played it. This is is the history of the Vans Warped Tour. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this show is all about the longest-running touring music festival in the history of the universe. The Vans Warped Tour began in 1995 and ran every year until the summer of 2018. But all things must come to an end, right? So, time to pay tribute. There is so much we could talk about here. I mean, 24 years. Like the time a group called the Black Eyed Peas played the tour in 1999 and met a woman named Fergie in the parking lot. They got along so well that they asked her to join the band. Or, or the time that Bud from Sublime got arrested twice on the same day. Or how Sublime was asked to leave the tour because they insisted on bringing the band's dog and there was a no-dog zone. Or the time Green Day's security guard blew his fingers off with some fireworks Uh, which were subsequently banned, by the way. The, The fireworks, not the fingers. Or how everyone on the 1998 tour either slept in tents or in Boy Scout camps. And I love this. Eight children of people who've worked on the tour in the past were themselves working on the tour as of 2014. It's crazy. But let's start at the beginning. The founder of Warped is Kevin Lyman. And for a guy who has brought so much music to so many people, we really don't know that much about him. We know he's American. He was born in 1961. He got into the business of booking bands while he was in university. He went to the California State Polytechnic University in Pomona, where he majored in Recreation Administration. Don't even know what that is. But that was back in the early 80s. What he would basically do is hire bands like Bad Religion and The Bangles when those groups were just starting out and book them at the university. When he graduated, he got a job at an L.A.-based concert promotion company called Golden Voice. There, he got to work as a production manager for groups ranging from Metallica to Jane's Addiction. And it was while working with Jane's Addiction as a stage manager on that first Lollapalooza road trip in 1991 that he started thinking of the new possibilities of package tours. He could narrow it down to one inspirational moment, Jane's performance of this song on that tour. <laughs> It was just something about Perry Farrell building a mountain song that had Kevin Lyman thinking about his own tour. And the way he'd stand out is to pair music with his love of extreme sports. Skateboarding, specifically. After watching Lollapalooza evolve over the next couple of years, he saw everything the festival was doing right. And what it was doing wrong when it came to the bands that were booked. He thought they were too mainstream and not eclectic enough. And how the festival was managed throughout the calendar. By 1995, he was ready to start his own tour. His would be called The Bomb. Great name. However, on the very day Kevin was going to announce his new venture, his very first tour, this would be April the 19th, 1995, Timothy McVeigh blew up the Federal Building in Oklahoma City. Until September 11th, 2001, that was the worst terrorist attack on American soil. So, calling your festival The Bomb was suddenly a very bad idea. That's when he went with Warped, the name of a magazine he'd worked on in the past. And in 1995, the first Warped tour went ahead. The first date was August 4th in Salt Lake City. There were 25 dates, including two in Canada, Toronto, and Vancouver. The first version was designed as kind of a baby brother to Lollapalooza, a collection of up-and-coming alternative bands performing on two stages. There were about 20 of them, Sublime, Deftones, L7, and a new group from Orange County called No Doubt. Nobody knew too much about them because their Tragic Kingdom album was still three months in the future. They got into Warped on the strength of their second record, the Beacon Street Collection, which was released in March of that year. If you had seen the 95 Warped Tour, No Doubt would have been performing songs like this. It's called By the Way. <laughs> No doubt when they were still an indie band, and that's, by the way, from their Beacon Street collection album, and a song that they would have performed on the first ever Warp Tour in 1995. Note that the first year, it was just Warped Tour. By the time it ended, Kevin realized that if the festival were to continue, he would need a sponsor. He lost money and couldn't pay everyone that first time out. And things were pretty grim, but companies were interested in helping out. For a while, it looked like the title sponsor was going to be Calvin Klein. But again, fate intervened. A meeting with the Calvin Klein people was canceled because of a blizzard. The rep that was flying out to see Kevin was trapped at his airport for 24 hours because of the weather. And before anything could be rescheduled, Vans, the skateboard company, the shoe company, stepped in during that 24-hour delay and signed a deal for $300,000. So from 1996 forward, it was officially the Vans Warp Tour. Airwalks, another shoe company, tried to scoop the sponsorship for 1997, but Kevin said no because he really liked the guys in charge of vans. This new sponsorship also meant a content pivot. Kevin moved the festival from broad-range alternative to focusing on punk and other music that went well with skate culture. This meant booking Fishbone, the Muddy Muddy Boss Tones, No Effect, 311, Pennywise, and this weird new group from San Diego called Blink-182. Now, they were still several years away from selling albums in multi-platinum numbers, but they did have an indie record out on a label called Cargo Music. Cargo had a reputation of signing skate punk bands, so Blink was perfect for the new look Warped. Their 1995 album, the most recent they'd done, was called Cheshire Cat. And for Warped, they played songs like this. Sometimes I sit at home Blink-182 and Wasting Time from their debut record Cheshire Cat and a song people who went to the 1996 Warped Tour would have seen them play. And at that time, they were just another face in the crowd, one of more than a dozen new bands being given a chance to show their stuff. This is an important thing about Warped. The work was hard, the pay was low, the pace was grueling, and the crowds could be tough. Plus, there were no luxuries to be had by anyone. No wonder Kevin Lyman often called Warped his punk rock summer boot camp. If you could survive Warped, you should be able to survive anything. For the third tour in 1996, Warped expanded to a main stage, a side stage, and a stage marked Locals Only. And also, bands were allowed to come in, play for a couple of shows, and then drop off the tour. As far as the records show, a total of 97 different acts participated in the 97 tour. Blink 182 was back, as were the Bostones. The Offspring played one show, Social Distortion played a bunch, some band called Limp Biscuit was there, and also this white rapper from Detroit named Eminem. He'd just released a debut album the previous November and was still trying to get anybody to pay attention to him. But I want to draw your attention to this. On July 16th, the band Less Than Jake played their first warp set. They hold the record for the most warped sets ever. No one is quite sure of the exact number, but it's somewhere north of 400. This is from their second album, Losing Streak. It's called Automatic. Less Than Jake and Automatic, again, they are the band which holds the record for the most Vans Warped Tour sets with something well beyond 400. This is a look back over 24 years of the Vans Warped Tour. In the process, this thing has become a cultural institution and a rite of passage not only for fans who attended, but the bands who participated. Some found their careers blowing up as they went on the road with Warped. And a great example of that was Sugar Ray. This is a band from Newport Beach, California. They've been working hard, but have been going nowhere since 1986. But then in 1997, they released an album called Floored. It was released on June the 24th, and their turn on the Warp Tour began eight days later, where they were assigned to play something called the Volcom stage. It wasn't very big. In most shows, it was maybe two feet off the ground. By the time the tour was half done, Sugar Ray was selling 70,000 copies a week, and as the hysteria around them built, they were literally up close and really personal with their growing fan base. And a big part of all that success was this song. Sugar Ray and Fly, a single that caught fire in the summer of 1997, right when they were still playing a tiny stage on the Vans Warped Tour. Then we have the already successful bands who joined Warp to rediscover a simpler time in their career, maybe as a way to reconnect with the way things used to be when they were younger and still hungry. They wanted to go on the road, have fun in a stripped-down, old-school kind of way. Green Day, for example. At the end of the 1990s, Green Day was was really having a rough time. They were out of gas, musically, physically, and creatively, and they were really close to breaking up. But then the 2000 Warped Tour came along and offered them a slot. Look, said organizer Kevin Lyman, here's a chance for you to play some shows with no pressure. Hang with the new bands, absorb some of their energy, maybe bask in your role as the elder statesman of this community." And at first, Green Day replied, there are two things we will not do. First, we will never watch the movie Titanic. And second, we will never ever play the Warp Tour. But whatever Kevin said to them worked because in 2000, Green Day agreed to sign on. And in retrospect, this was very important because playing the tour did re-energize them. It introduced them to a new generation of punk rock fans who were too young when the Dookie album came out in 1994. And they went over very, very well. This was followed by their label issuing a Greatest Hits album, which turned into a surprise success. And then the next time Green Day went on the road, it was with Blink-182, who were by this time selling tens of millions of records. That tour confirmed their elder statesman role and put Billy Joe Armstrong on the road to running the American Idiot album. And we kind of know how that all turned out, right? You, in fact, can make a very good argument that Green Day would have never had a second act to their career had they not agreed to play Warped in 2000. Green Day, live on the Vans Warped Tour, July 30th, 2000. As far as anybody can tell, no one knows exactly how many bands have performed as part of the Warped Tour since it started in 1995. Some groups sign on for the whole tour, others come along only for part of the ride, and then there are those who play one gig and they're out. In any given year, more than 250 names appeared on the bill. There is a Wikipedia page that does its best to keep track of all the Warped Acts, but it's been a struggle. Some years, the festival has had as many as nine stages, plus an acoustic tent and a comedy tent. And on average, no matter where the show stops, there are at least 90 bands a day. Managing ticket sales has been another issue. Late in the tour's life, Warped started allowing parents of young kids to come to the show for free. And on average, Warped welcomed 800 parents per show. Now, that's a lot of lost ticket revenue at 40 bucks a ticket, call it $1.4 million but Warped more than made up for that by the increase in the number of kids that were able to go because their parents could get in free. It more than balanced things out, which just is brilliant. Still, there's a lot of luck involved. Kevin has it figured out that when it comes to ticket sales, the make or break point of any van's Warped Tour comes down to the last 10 days of the tour. So if the weather turns bad with rain or heat or whatever, that's a problem and it's beyond anybody's control. Then there's the matter of catering. Feeding every warp Tour is like feeding an army. A woman by the name of Shelley Lynn owns a company called Tada Catering. She was with the tour from the very beginning. And Tada served more than 1,300 meals a day, or more than 82,000 in a typical year. This includes 6,000 pounds of potatoes, 18,000 cups of coffee, 3,500 cases of beer, and on a typical night, the Warp barbecue, which features all of the acts, serves up 300 hot dogs, 300 hamburgers, and 100 veggie burgers. 90% of the artists and their crews ate better on the Warp tour than they did at home. That'll give you just a taste of the organizational wizardry and the difficulties that the tour has developed over the years. Let me play you something from All Time Low. They are a multiple Warp Tour performer. They signed up at least half a dozen times. And one of the weirdest stats I was able to find was that during the 2012 tour, which featured 41 shows in 51 days, exactly 492 bras were thrown on stage during All Time Low's sets. They played songs like this that year, from their Dirty Work album, this is Time Bomb. Here are a few more stats about Warped. The lineup changes from city to city. That way fans can't plan their day around a set schedule of performances. And over the years, they've learned that. Kevin Lyman says that on average, 90% of the attendees show up as soon as the gates open. Warped stage sets tend to be very bare bones. The first band to use any kind of prop on stage was Avenged Sevenfold. And the prop they brought with them? Smoke Machine. And I'd forgotten this. In 1998, the Warp Tour merged with OzFest for something that was called Skatin' for Satan. That was an interesting crowd. And I mentioned the Barbecue a few minutes ago. There's something called the Barbecue Band. This is the group that agrees to prepare the post-show dinner for other performers and the crew in exchange for being able to play on the tour themselves. And this has been great for smaller bands who are looking to break through. And it works. Barbecue bands have included Blink-182, Katy Perry and My Chemical Romance. They were the barbecue band in 2004, and when they weren't making hot dogs and hamburgers, they were playing new songs like this. Former barbecue cooks for the Warp Tour, My Chemical Romance. And before we leave this subject, a word about Katy Perry. She was on the Warped Tour in 2008, but she was voted the laziest artist on the bill because she was never at any of the post-show parties. Well, that's because in addition to performing every day, she was up at 5 a.m. to do radio and TV appearances. Kevin Lyman says that she was actually the hardest working of any artist on that year's tour. It's just that nobody knew. Because she never showed up at the parties. This is a look back at 24 years of the Vans Warp Tour, 1995 to 2018. Here are some other artists that you may not have expected to have warped on their resume Coheed and in Cambria, Incubus, Jimmy Eat World, Chaos, Linkin Park in 2015, MIA, Papa Roach, Rise Against, 30 Seconds to Mars, Simple Plan has participated at least 11 times, and Billy Talent. Four times, as a matter of fact. Warp didn't just attract young bands. Some seriously grizzled veterans have joined up over the years. There was the Damned, yes, the English punk band from the 1970s, the Buzzcocks, who were the only band to ever demand something backstage. They wanted a bottle of champagne. The Alarm, the Welsh band, whose roots go back to the middle 70s. Dick Dale, the legendary surf guitarist from the 1960s. We also have Joan Jett and the Descendants, the Circle Jerks. Fishbone, Godsmack, Ice-T demanded to be on the tour in 1999. Kid Rock was there in 99, too. The Misfits, The Offspring, Billy Idol, Social Distortion. And Rancid has agreed to participate at least three times. Oh, and true or false, Weezer was a Warped Tour band. True! They were on the bill in 2000. That was right near the end of the hiatus between the Pinkerton album, which came out in 1996, and just before the Green album in 2001. Warped was their way of easing themselves back into the game after Rivers Cuomo took time to go to Harvard. Warped fans would have had a chance to hear Weezer Road Test's upcoming songs like this... Weezer, Warped Tour Veterans from 2000. One last thing about the tour, and this is very, very important. There has always been a big philanthropic part of Warped. The tour has supported a lot of charities over the year, like Feed Our Children Now, and it wasn't unusual for more than 300,000 pounds of food to be collected over the course of one tour. The tour has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for an organization called Music Cares, it helps musicians and roadies with no health insurance. You know, God bless the American health system. Hope for the Day is a suicide prevention outreach program. Can You Hear Me is another mental health organization that also deals with bullying and peer pressure. Headcount is all about voter registration. FEND is an anti-opioid abuse group. A Voice for the Innocent supports victims of rape and sexual abuse. There's a breast cancer awareness group and various groups dealing with the environment. And there were six years in a row that Warp Tour's blood drive was named Independent Blood Drive of the Year. None of that would be possible. And many of the other things Warped has done at all the stops along the tour without the help of thousands of volunteers and interns. I found this number for 2012. That year, 16,400 volunteers helped with Warped. It's amazing. One more from a Warp veteran. This band has toured with that circus at least seven times. It's the Ataris. 2018 was the last year for the Vans Warp Tour after 24 years founder kevin lyman had had enough sacrificing all those summers to a single cause certainly wasn't easy and kevin really got just two weeks off at the end of the tour before he started planning things for the following summer so this was a year-round thing and with the changes in the economics of the music business enough's enough think of it this way when the tour started in 1995 hardly anyone was using the internet No one had ever heard of MP3s. Streaming was years in the future, and the compact disc ruled. Still, 24 years, an amazing run. Lots of careers were launched, lots of friendships were cemented, and a lot of good work was done for charity, so uh, well done. I'm available pretty much all the time. If you need to reach me, just use alan at alancross.ca and I will get right back to you. Then there's my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every single day with whatever stuff I can find. And if you want the free newsletter, just go to the website and subscribe. You'll find good information in your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern every day. Or if you prefer, I can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. And don't forget all the podcast versions of this show. You can find dozens and dozens of them at iTunes or wherever you get your on-demand audio. And they're all free, of course. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross.